for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Bob Salzberg. We're doing the show remotely today to avoid the risk of spreading infection. We're spread over six different locations. Co-hosting with Sarah Whitmire, the WFIU, WTIU News Director. And we're going to be getting updates from hospital officials on what their facilities have been doing in the last few weeks to prepare. We have three guests with us. Two are going to be joining us the first of the show, and we'll have a third uh, later on in the program. Dr. Dan Handel is back with us again. He's the Chief Medical Officer, IU Health South Central Region. And Brenda Reitz is the CEO of Greene County General Hospital. If you want to uh, follow us on Twitter, the handle is at Noon Edition. You can also send us questions there, or you can send us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're not able to take your phone calls today because we are spread all over the place. So thank, thanks for joining us, though. So, Dr. Handel, I wanted to uh, touch base with you first because you've been on the program a couple times already. Uh, where are we in this pandemic? What are you seeing um, at IU Health Facility? Well, thanks for having me back. I, you know, I, I kind of would describe this as kind of the, the calm before the storm. Um, we're holding steady right now in terms of the numbers and the daily numbers, not only um, at Bloomington Hospital, but across IU Health. I think um, we're doing well in terms of our resources and our staff and our supplies. We're just um, kind of waiting for, for the, next, the next steps and the surge that we're anticipating in the next one to two weeks. So can I follow up and ask, how, how, does that, um, how does that sort of equate to what Sarah Whitmire just said on the news that the, uh, the state saw 55 more deaths and now it's at 300? It seems like the death rate is certainly going up fairly rapidly and has been this week. Well, you know, I, I think one, I encourage anyone if they haven't looked at it already to look at the Indiana State Department of Health website. Um, I think there's two numbers to look at. There's at the total amounts, but also the daily amounts. Um, and one of the things I'm looking at day to day are the total number of positive cases, new positive cases, increasing or holding steady. And actually, if you look over the past week or so, the number of new cases on a daily basis is held relatively steady across the state. Uh, and that goes for deaths as well. So, you know, we've done a lot of work um, across the state from social distancing. Um, ourselves. I think the challenge for us over the next one to two weeks is really staying intentional about it. Um, and I know it's hard, particularly as the weather gets warmer for people, but you know, the, the hardest days are ahead of us. And I think it's just maintaining that discipline to keep this up for the next few weeks. All right. So Brenda Reitz is joining us. She's the CEO of Green County General Hospital. So, you know, we've heard a lot about how, um, you know, rural communities and Green County is certainly more rural than, than a lot of the IU Health communities, although IU Health has some facilities in smaller communities as well. But, you know, what? how are you doing just in general at Green County General Hospital? Um, I, I don't think we're, we're doing much different than Dr. Hondal just talked about. I mean, it's, we are, and we've prepared as much as we can. We're doing okay right now on, on resources as well. And um, really even for the rural communities, it's kind of proportionate to, um, we, we have a proportionate number of patients to the size of our facilities and the resources that we have. Um, I think our community has done a, a good job with social distancing here that um, doing the best that we can and we are seeing positive cases. Um, and, um, but we have right now the resources to take care of those. And, and like, um, just like IU Health, we are um, prepared for that surge as well, waiting for it to happen here in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's hard to tell when it's really going to happen. And um, when our community does the social distancing really well, I think we continue to, to delay and, and flatten that surge that we will have, which is a good thing. Um, but, 
you know, one of the challenges we have here is preparing for that surge and the kind of the difference with rural is that um, there's not a lot of depth to our resources. So right now our resources are, are okay. And we've, um, part of our preparation has been to try to add depth to those resources. Um, but it's, you know, if we have very many employees get sick, we don't have a lot of uh, a huge staff to kind of fall back on. So um, those are the challenges that we have that I think are somewhat different here in the rural communities. Yeah. So I want to follow up on that and dig a little deeper. Uh, both of you, both you and Dr. Handel said, you know, preparing for the surge. I mean, what's that mean? Do you, are you just getting as many uh, PPEs and as many ventilators and as many um, masks as you can and get them put aside so that you have the equipment when, when and if the surge hits? Yeah. So a lot of it has been just trying to um, build up our current stock of, you know, when we're talking about PPE, it's um, building up what we have available. Um, and then the other part of preparing with that PPE is making sure that we are properly using it now and, and conserving what we have so that it lasts as long as possible. Um, we don't know how much more we're going to be able to get. We don't know if we're going to be able to replenish the stock that we have. So we're trying to just get our stock as um, as big as we can and then conserve what we have and properly use it. So in terms of the PPE, that's the preparation we've gone through. Um, and then ventilators, we have um, been able to basically double the number of ventilators that we have here in house um, by renting from some different places and acquiring um, some from organizations that have them, but won't necessarily need them. So um, ventilator, you know, increasing that. The other is um, just increasing the number of beds that we have in the hospital as a critical access hospital. Um, by CMS regulations, we can only have 25 beds, um, but that that regulation has been waived um, during a situation like this. So we're able to increase the number of beds, and, and we've increased our surge capacity to be 40 beds. And we've, we've actually been able, because we have one unit that is typically our medical surgical unit, we've been able to open an additional unit. So we are able to separate um, the, the infectious and non-infectious patients from each other, um, which has been a benefit. Um, and then that also has doubled our volume, um, the patients that we can handle. So that's a lot of the, the surge prep that we have done. So when you say you've doubled the number of ventilators, how, how many did you have before and how many have you added? We have eight now. Okay. All right. Dr. Handel, can you uh, go through the same kind of preparation for us? Absolutely. I mean, it, it parallels uh, exactly what Brenda was talking about. And what we're doing is we've done a lot of drills uh, about our search planning saying, okay, if we're at this volume of patients, what do we need for that? When we get to the next level, what do we need? So it's not only the ventilators and the beds, but also our staffing. Um, you know, we're also anticipating, um, if, if people get sick during this process, you know, what is our backup plan? And, you know, and one of the things we've done um, is we significantly curtailed our outpatient visits, which gives us a workforce of people who normally work in the clinic setting, and we're retraining them up to do inpatient hospital work as well. Um, that includes our operating rooms as well of teams that normally work in the OR, and how do we pull them into our inpatient staffing? So as with any a situation like this, you can't prepare too much. And so we have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, et cetera. And we've walked through every possible scenario we can think of based on best case and worst case scenarios in terms of how we would address it. So that when the moment arises, we know exactly what we want to do based on our previous plans and drills. How have you uh, kept your staffing levels? Have you had people who've fallen ill? Very, very few. Um, I think, you know, probably about two weeks ago, we implemented universal masking of all of our staff in any patient care area. Um, and, and I think that's, that's gone, it's gone a long way. In addition to um, universal masking of patients who present to our emergency departments. I mean, we learned early on, we thought that the typical symptoms for this were primarily respiratory in nature, but we realized there were a myriad of other symptoms as well. So out of an abundance of caution, as patients show up to our emergency departments, we've um, been much more intentional about masking and that protects the patients when they show up, but also our team members as well. So, uh, you know, it's a very small percentage of our, uh, of our uh, 
and team members who are out and you know and we're trying to and we're doing everything we can to make sure that we keep them as healthy as possible for a multitude of reasons you're listening to noon edition on wfiu and we have some health experts with us today so if you have questions about the coronavirus and what's going on at this point and what to expect how to protect yourself anything like that uh, please give us a, don't give us a call but please send us an email news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So what about testing? How, you know, we, we've been through, uh, Dr. Handel, we've been through times when there were no tests available to, to what's the status now? I, I, we, uh, we're trying to, you know, initially the state was the sole testing source and that's been, um, that's been shared with facilities around the state. So IU Health is trying to expand their capacity as fast as they can. So as our internal testing capabilities expand, we've obviously expanded our ability to test different populations. We started out testing just healthcare workers and people who were sick enough to get to admit to the hospital. Um, we've expanded that um, to um, our patients who are high risk in the outpatient setting as well. Um, and working in certain markets with first responders and, and so forth, and also non-IU health healthcare workers. So as quickly as we can scale up our testing capabilities, we are expanding that to larger and larger cohorts of our, of our population to meet their needs. How about in Greene County? Um, we, we follow the same guidance um, and we have been able to, we were fortunately um, already uh, partnered with LabCorp as a reference lab. And so very early on, we were able to start um, sending our um, swabs or testing to LabCorp. So we've been working with the state um, as well, either doing state testing or sending to LabCorp. Um, and I think the, the frustration with the testing very initially on was the turnaround time um, for us to get the results back. We're, that's, we're seeing a lot of improvement with that, um, particularly with the state test. And, um, and it's, it's the same of we were very restrictive, I think, in the beginning on testing because, um, one, supplies were very limited and resources were limited. And now as we are getting more supplies and ability to test, uh, we are, we're really ramping that up and testing a lot more people than we were. Okay, Sarah? How are you handling contact, contact tracing then in those cases if somebody does return with a positive test? For us here in Greene County, that's all handled by our local health department. What we're doing from an IU Health perspective, um, you know, we work with our, our infection prevention teams that are employee health so that we're following the CDC criteria. Um, if people, if team members do test positive in terms of, first of all, making sure they are doing well from a health perspective, but also appropriate quarantine precautions and following those so that we're very intentional in minimizing their um, risk of spreading to others, but also making sure that when they are better, that they're safe to return to work. So both of you work with a lot of healthcare professionals, and you know we've seen a lot of uh, news reports about the stress that they're under. Um, how can people, you know, help the healthcare professionals in in Greene County or in any of the areas where IU Health has uh, has facilities and Brenda, could you answer that first? Yeah, I think here we've had a lot of community support coming in with, um, you know, even ordering pizzas for our staff, um, all kinds of things like that, plus sending in um, just kind of comfort items is what we call them for our employees. And I think just the staff knowing that the community is really looking at them as, as heroes and that they're on the front lines and there's that acknowledgement in the community has been huge for our staff. Um, it, it just gives them the sense that people care and they know why we're here. Um, and then in here at the hospital too, we've tried to do as much as we can to um, reduce the stress of coming to work and whether that's, you know, making sure that everyone has a, has a warm meal or even if we can send food home with people because they can't cook dinner for their families or they can't go to the grocery store. So having food here that they can um, get instead of running to the grocery store, those are the kind of things that we're trying to do, um, provide scrubs um, for them and provide laundry services for them. Um, those are the kind of things that um, we've received some community support to be able to do some of that, whether um, donations are coming into the hospital um, or, um, or otherwise. It's just that, I think, general sense of knowing that the community cares and the community appreciates what they're doing helps a lot. 
I know, Dr. Handel, you, you uh, provided for us an email address um, or a web address before. So it's iuhealth.org slash donate hyphen COVID hyphen 19. We can put that on our website. But what, what are you hoping or, or what can people donate? What can people uh, provide for you? I think it's anything, I mean, that's, um, that's to our IU Health Foundation, anything from um, money to food to medical equipment, anything is greatly appreciated. And I, I mean, I echo Brenda, I couldn't be more touched um, by the support we've gotten, not only in our region, but across the state. Um, you know, it, it really is, um, it, it's, it's really kind of emotional when you see these local businesses who are hurting themselves, but they're not thinking of themselves and they're thinking of how they can support the community. So, I mean, I think it's, it, it's nothing short of uh, amazing in terms of the outpouring of support. Um, you know, the other thing too, is if people are making uh, house uh, homemade mask and you're in the Bloomington area, our IU health community um, center on three, three, three Miller drive is accepting um, mask and everything um, from, from, um, things that people are making at home, and then they'll make sure it gets out to the people who need it most. So there's no shortage of opportunities, and and I think more importantly, we're really appreciative of all the support we've got. All right, Sarah. We got a question from Joan, and here's what she says: It seems like we won't be able to come out of social isolation until we get the testing situation under control. Why is the U.S. so far behind other countries in testing? What needs to be done to get this problem solved? And I should say, Indiana, um, we did a story this week that Indiana is doing less testing per capita than all the neighboring states as well. So, Dr. Handel, do you want to, can you talk a little bit more about testing? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's an interesting experiment to look at the different countries around the world and those who have um, more or less robust um, community health or public health infrastructures. And I, I mean, I think one thing, at not only us as a state, but as a nation, as we come out of this, I think it's a, it's a big wake-up call that I think we, we need to look at how we better invest from a public health perspective. Um, you know, and it's, and it's not only just a conversation for this, but also kind of as we look at how we provide more cost-effective and higher-value care down the road. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, we, you know, I think both Brent and I, you know, as many people as we could test, we would. It's just we're limited by the amount of tests that we can do at this time. All right. We're being joined now by Dr. Aaron Ermel. He's the uh, IU School of Medicine Clinical Service Line Leader for the Division of Infectious Diseases. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Uh, so I guess I want to ask you first about... Um, what we're seeing, has social distancing been really help us get this under control? Well, it's a little early to tell, though we've looked over the last few days uh, in our systems, at least downtown's um, admissions, um, we've seen a gradual decrease over the last four to five days. I think this trend statewide is also being seen. Um, clearly, in certain areas, we will see pockets where there will be continue to be COVID-related admissions. But um, overall, as we follow the metrics, and kind of one of the more important ones to follow is new um, uh, cases, that trend is starting to flatten out over time. So we think that the major reason for this is, is partly the, um, the social distancing measures that actually Indiana started a little bit earlier um, than some other states. So as an infectious disease expert, I mean, what advice would you give people, you know, as we go into these next weeks, which a lot of leaders have said are particularly critical to uh, stopping the spread of the disease? Well, to continue to practice the social distancing measures that we've been trying to counsel people on, I mean, this is kind of one of our best um, I guess, weapons against this disease, if you look at something that the community can actually do. Um, so if the community wants to participate, I think trying to continue to follow these measures is what will continue to, to flatten out what we're seeing as far as new cases and allow us to spread that out over time. Um, it's really hard, I think, from the public to see that to make an intervention. Uh, sometimes there's that feeling of being helpless, but I think following these measures and, um, and following the guidance is probably one of the best things they can do. 
All right. Let me give our phone our uh, the way to contact us again. At noon edition is our Twitter handle. If you have a question or a comment, you can send it there, or you can send it to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Uh, Dr. Ermel, are there particular areas of Indiana that um, where people should pay particular attention? I mean, we know that Indianapolis has been very hard hit. Are there other areas that have been um, maybe harder hit in, in terms of just uh, population? Right. So I would say that actually, you know, right behind, um, if you just look at the county level, right behind Indianapolis, if you look at Lake County and then also um, Hamilton County, um, we've seen more cases. Now there's a lot that goes into seeing cases because, you know, the number of tests and things um, uh, that people run. Uh, but if you also think of where those counties are located, they're located next to other major population centers. So Lake County being right next to Chicago, um, and then um, Hamilton County being just north of Indianapolis and where, uh, you know, some of the first cases were. So those are kind of some of our um, higher areas. Again, some of this reflects like either lots of testing or lack of testing, um, but those are the two areas that have seen the greatest increase. This is a question for any of you, really. It actually came in through our, our City Limits project, but people want to know, you know, should they be wearing a mask and should they be wearing gloves when they go out in public? Well, Dr. Handel, you want yeah, I, so we we talked about this yesterday. I think the CDC guidance now is um, that if you can wear a mask in public, it is best, but it's the, the fabric homemade masks. Um, don't use the medical grade surgical masks or N95s. Um, those need to be reserved for healthcare workers and working directly um, in facilities. Um, so community members are advised to wear um, a fabric mask. Um, when they're out in public. Um, and the, the glove topic, uh, it comes up just because um, the gloves won't protect the general community from cross-contamination. And cross-contamination is the real problem. That's whenever you, you, know, you walk in a store and you touch a grocery cart and the person right before you had COVID and they sneezed all over the grocery cart. Now you touch that and it's on your hands and it's going to be on your hands whether you have gloves or don't have gloves. And it's all about sanitizing after touching surfaces that could be contaminated. Um, and, and that the gloves don't change that situation. Um, so that's where the gloves aren't necessarily that beneficial in the community. It's more about sanitization of your hands and avoiding contact with surfaces that could be contaminated. Well, and I think the mask also is uh, really important if people are, are in situations where they can't separate themselves by six feet. Um, the State Department of Health did put out some guidelines a couple days ago about that as well. So no, I completely agree. And I think the biggest risk too, also with people um, touching things, whether they're gloved or not, is our natural propensity for touching our faces. And that's really kind of how, how this virus spreads. If someone touches a contaminated surface and then touches their face. So that's, I think hand hygiene is still essential whether people are wearing gloves or not. Sarah? We got a question from Lily wanting to know, do you anticipate the need to use either retired nurses and physicians or new grads to help with staffing during the surge. Do you want to start, Dr. Hando? Um, I, you know, we talk about our contingency plans. I think one of the nice things about IU Health being as big as it is is that we've not only talked through surge plans within our own hospitals and our own regions, but across the system. So, for example, if Indianapolis hits the surge before. Um, the rest of the state, then we have opportunities to pull people from different parts of the state to support them and then vice versa. Um, I, do, I do appreciate um, the school nursing through IU, Ivy Tech, and other nursing schools did graduate um, their nursing students early. The School of Medicine graduated their med students early as well. So, so there, I, I think as people are getting trained up in the workforce, they're, they're going to do so. And, you know, we've had a strong outpouring from our local medical societies as well. And that, that's one of our contingency plans, but it's not at the top of the list, but we do have it in as another a tool in our tool belt if we need to use it. And what about in Greene County? Yeah, I think um, we don't 
you know, have that ability to pull from other locations. I mean, we're, we're kind of self-sustaining here. So um, we have looked at that as an option. Um, I think one of our first line defenses, though, if we have those surges, we've talked about implementing team care um, to try to just extend um, the, the nursing abilities there and partnering um, a nurse with, with maybe other staff that can kind of expand the abilities of what the nurse can do in terms of providing patient care um, and really reserving the nurses for the, the care that has to be performed by a nurse. So I think what we will see before we, we actually start bringing in retired staff is going to be more of that, that team approach to care and pulling from the areas, um, you know, just like Dr. Hendel said, of where we've closed outpatient procedure areas um, where we can pull that staff in for a team approach. But we definitely, we've, we've received the list from the Indiana State Department of Health for the volunteer workers that would be willing to come in. And, um, and we have that available. We've also talked to our staff about expanding their hours, um, working kind of typical shifts that they wouldn't necessarily work. And those are the things that we are doing first before we would implement something like that. But it's by no means off the table. We got a follow-up question as well. Um, I'm not quite sure if we'll be able to answer it, but the question is, are, are doctors, nurses, healthcare workers, are they allowed to talk freely just about how things are operating in hospitals and then what the person calls the terrible lack of testing? I, I guess I'll start. I mean, I, I think it's, it's always a, it's a fine balance. It's important that we maintain patient privacy. Um, and so I think that's obviously, you know, I, I, I'm a practicing emergency physician myself. So, you know, when I can tell you, you know, when I worked three shifts in three of our emergency departments over the last week, you know, it's, it's a, it's a intense environment to be in there. And I think I want to respect people's um, ability to kind of debrief from that, but we just also have to be mindful that we are still taking care of patients and maintaining their privacy. So, yeah, I think it's fine for people to talk. We just got to make sure that the privacy of our patients is of the utmost importance. Well, I can I can address as well if you're talking about sort of the operations of how we are changing operations in the facilities and what our plans are and talking about those. Um, I think that's one of really a good thing that has come of all of this is that the facilities and, and all our are, are talking. Um, I, I've probably communicated more with other healthcare facilities throughout the state more than I typically would. Um, and, and it's really that we are all collaborating to make sure that the whole state is taken care of and that there's nothing proprietary um, during this time. And so in terms of operations and tips and tricks that we found and how we get through it and sharing of resources, um, there's, there's more of that going on than I've ever seen in healthcare, which I think is phenomenal. All right, Dr. Ermel, I wanted to ask, uh, we have one question and I know there, there's been, I guess, hope that, you know, warmer weather might have some impact on this virus. Is there any evidence to show? Yeah, I mean, not as of yet. You know, we've seen some increase in our local temperatures and our case <clears throat> rates have been relatively the same. I think and you can't, it's even actually hard to look across the U.S. where there's pockets in the South that aren't as affected, but yet you have states like Florida and Louisiana that are suffering uh, even more than we are, whether this was due to other social movement or population density, um, it's really unclear. Um, other countries um, that are right now experiencing their summers or warmer weather than we are, are still seeing a pretty large number of cases. And unfortunately, some of those countries aren't really even testing. So it's still difficult to pull the numbers. So I'm, I'm not too, um, I guess, too confident in warmer weather helping at this point. Um, just uh, maybe it will be more seasonal, but I think uh, with such a new virus and the way it's moving through the population, I, I won't be counting on the weather too much. We had Dr. Tom Rasmalis on a couple of weeks ago, and I, I think there had just been some studies out about how long the virus could last just in the open air. Um, there have been things floating around on social media about runners and bicyclists and not getting too close to another runner, another cyclist. Um, what's the latest um, science on whether you could get the virus just through contact in the air? 
Right. So um, most of the studies, there's kind of a nice paper that came out in Nature Medicine just within the last like four or five days. Uh, they actually tried to quantify this and to see how well it would last. I mean, clearly the longest duration is with aerosolized particles. So when they tried to simulate and simulate this in the lab, um, you know, that was how they got the, the few hour duration in the air. I think outside contamination is a little hard simply because that's um, that environment's very different where you have different air movement. It's not quite our um, laboratory models. Um, so yes, I've seen some of those studies where they're trying to replicate this, though um, I don't know that that's the mode of transmission uh, that we're worried about. And I think as had been mentioned before, I mean, some of this, we're already trying to distance people, um, but it was really like a stationary distance, maintaining kind of those close contacts. So I don't know that right, running and biking are gonna be as uh, problematic, that we're still recommending that people space themselves out. All right. So if you have a question, you can give us uh, uh, an email, news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and send questions that way at Noon Edition. We remind you of who we have lined up today to talk to you. Three experts in the area, Dr. Dan Handel, Chief Medical Officer for IU Health South Central Region, Brenda Reitz, who's the CEO of Greene County General Hospital, and Aaron Ermel, who is uh, an MD. He's with the IU School of Medicine, clinical service line leader for the Division of Infectious Diseases. So our, again, I'll, let me ask about, uh, about data that you may or may not have, but when all the people who have tested positive, um, and then and the, the 300 people who now have died in Indiana, when when you look at them as a group, what what specific um, things come out to you? I mean, the, the with the deaths, I know the age and underlying conditions have been considered the biggest things. Are you seeing anything different from that, or is it just sticking to to form? Well, uh, you know, I. I... Uh, so when we look at the deaths, actually over time as we look at our trends, we're pretty much matching the age um, considerations that were taken, you know, very early on in the um, in the disease. So if you look at people 16 above, this is the vast majority of our deaths. Um, but what I think has really um, over the last couple of weeks as we've accrued more data. Uh, come out over time is that males are just uh, disproportionately affected. So we're seeing um, right now, if you just look at our um, State Department of Health website, I mean, males are 62% of the deaths in this um, uh, in this state. And it was a little bit closer to 50-50, to you know, a couple of weeks ago, and now we've seen that spread. So, so that's been the trend the whole time. So age has held up, and then now our disparity in gender is starting to appear. Okay. Anything just about... Um about contact and about about getting the disease, the disease testing positive any data about that right so i think this one thing that um has uh, made some you know the contact tracing other things difficult has been lack of testing and this has been very hard to do out in the community which we're just now starting to do um, because the majority of our testing really comes from hospital-based um, testing which doesn't allow you quite the detailed epidemiologic investigation so um, outside of, at least in Indiana, we have yet to report some of our larger, like the assisted living facility um, type outbreaks, even, even though there may be some, um, but not quite those events like we've had in other areas. Um, uh, so, and we are starting to screen our jails and things as well. So other areas where people are, um, I guess, in high density living situations, uh, we're still, we still haven't seen quite those yet. Um, and we're just now starting to get a feel as to, as to disease in the community. Sarah? With testing, we had a question about whether that is something that is going to be covered by insurance or if somebody has had contact with somebody who tests positive and then it's recommended they get tested, is that something they're going to have to pay for potentially out of pocket? I've seen, um, I mean, I for, for example, our own health insurance plan um, for IU Health, that we've been very, the IU Health plans, we've been very intentional in saying there's no out-of-pocket cost to our team members and those on the IU Health plans. Um, I've seen other insurers like United and others who have taken similar stances um, for to cover from an insurance standpoint. I, I don't know if there's universal mandate at this point in terms of how it's covered by insurance plans, um, but I'm sure that will 
quickly materialize um, in the next couple of weeks. We had a follow-up to the question about um, about whether people could speak freely. And I'm just going to be blunt because the questioner was, and the questioner asked, are doctors, physicians being muzzled about what's actually going on in the hospitals? I don't, and I can tell you not from our perspective, as I said, I mean, I think we are, we are very intentional in terms of how we communicate not only with our physicians and our other team members um, and being very proactive at making sure that they have the appropriate amount of uh, personal protective equipment or PPE. Um, you know, I, I, I've seen those reports around the country and it's, it's a little concerning to me, not only um, as, a, as a hospital leader, but also as a physician. You know, I, I, but you know, as I said, I, I think we just gotta be mindful that we strike the balance of hearing people's concerns, but at the same time, making sure that our, our, our patients' privacies are maintained. Um, you know, and you, you'll, you'll know that we don't, we don't comment on specific patients. We, we comment on what's reported through the State Department of Health, and that's very intentional to make sure we maintain patient privacy. So, yeah, let me ask this question because, you know, every physician I think I've ever come in contact with had uh, a pretty good sense of confidence about them. So I would think it <laughs> would be kind of difficult if a physician wanted to speak out to whoever he wanted to speak out to or she wanted to speak out to, I think it would be difficult to muzzle a whole group. Am oh, I yeah. Right? And, you know, one of the things we do within our region, so every every evening um, I get on a call with all our medical staff members across the region, we have an open forum and open dialogue. So not only do I um, connect with them daily to make sure they have the latest information because this is such a rapidly evolving process, but it's an open forum for them to reach, to give me feedback and saying, okay, uh, Dan, this is what's working from our perspective. This is what we can do better. And I, you know, we've been doing this for probably two or three weeks now. Uh, and having that dialogue has been essential to really connect, um, connect with all our medical staff across the region. You're right. They're not, they are not shy people at all. All right. Well, Again, if you have a question, uh, our listeners, if you have a question, we have three health experts with us, news at indianapublicmedia.org and uh, Twitter at Noon Edition. We can't take your phone calls today. So Brenda, I wanted to ask you, Brenda Reitz is CEO of Green County General Hospital. Um, again, we've heard a lot about uh, rural health care and rural communities. What kind of a financial, long-term financial impact might this have on your healthcare facility? Uh, that's, you know, yet to be determined, of course. But um, initially, that was one of our, our big concerns, especially when we're talking about canceling outpatient procedures and elective surgeries um, and even your um, non-essential outpatient visits. Um, it's That took away, you know, when I'm looking back at our, our revenue for last month, um, we were down by about 25%. And um, and so if you equate, we were really only working through this process about half the month. Um, we're taking approximately 50% um, revenue loss right now. And that's not something that, that we can afford. Um, I don't think there's any hospital in the country that can afford a 50% revenue loss. So it's, it is challenging. Um, I have been very impressed with the federal government's um, responsiveness to all of this and to get um, funding available and to us. Um, we were, we've actually received um, just it's today um, in our, our direct deposit from Medicare, we did receive our first payment from the stimulus fund that the CARES Act that I'm sure most of you um, would be aware of. Um, so we've received our first um, payment from that and it's, it's definitely going to help. Um, it's not going to be something that definitely secures our future. Um, there's still a lot to be mitigated through all of this. And and even, I think, the unwinding of all of this, um, when we get on the other side of this pandemic, um, that un properly unwinding is what's going to be the, the challenging part. Um, and to be very strategic about that so that it doesn't have a, an even greater financial impact on us. But um, there's still a lot to work through, but there's a, I, I have been impressed with the support that we've gotten, um, you know, from, from all of our federal and state support on that. Dr. Handel, how about with uh, your hospitals and the IU system? It's the exact same thing. I mean, I think we have the benefit of being able to lean um, our smaller hospitals are able to lean on the system at large about 
how, how do we make sure that we make ends meet? And, and we just talked on, we have a daily incident command call. We just talked about this morning about this, the similar uh, stimulus. But I, I mean, I just think not only from my health, from, from a larger state perspective, I, I worry about our smaller hospitals, our independent hospitals, because they serve a vital role to meet the needs of our, um, our citizens across the state and making sure that we support them um, through this to make sure that they're still able to do so after we get past this. All right. So, uh, Dr. Ermel, what, uh, with the, all the religious holidays coming up, I mean, how, you know, how difficult does, does that, or what, what's that add to the, you know, the, the degree of difficulty for the social distancing issue? Right. So um, I think that what it what it does is it adds kind of that other layer of kind of temptation to wanting to return to normalcy. Um, so, you know, all of us getting, who celebrate Easter would normally gather with our families in larger groups, um, families who normally are not um, together that are separated. And you will want to get together as you've done every other year. Um, and it, for some people, they might look to this as the the first opportunity to get back to our usual lives. And, and I think that's what the challenge um, is, is it's going to be trying to maintain that separation during a time um, that uh, is so, uh, so celebrated uh, that people enjoy. So I think it's, it's trying to make the best of it. Um, but, but that's really right now understanding that's in the long term, probably not celebrating that holiday or not gathering will be the, the better option. And I, uh sort of a related way, you know, nursing homes are really getting hit pretty hard with this. And, and that would be a time when a lot of family would, would be going to visit with their older relatives around the holidays. So can you talk a little bit about the state of Indiana's long-term care facilities and nursing homes and what they can do to, to make sure and protect the people that live there? Right. I mean, you know, a lot of um, the earlier outbreaks um, can partially be traced back to maybe sick individuals who had entered the, um, uh, the long-term care facility before we really understood how COVID was transmitted or that we knew there were so many cases here in the U.S. And I think trying to maintain that separation and not expose um, is probably the best thing you can do for your loved ones in that care facility. You know, I mean, because that would actually be much more harm than I think even uh, the benefit of visiting them would provide. Uh, so really, again, it's trying to maintain that, um, trying to maintain contact in other ways. I think we've all had to um, adapt and try to find other ways to maintain contact with loved ones. Um, I know Zoom um, has become popular and not necessarily the substitute that we all wanted, but I mean, it's trying to do that um, and those things so that people, you don't forget about people, but again, trying to understand their safety is important and staying um, out of those. And, and that's only reflected um, in the, um, you know, the ages that we see most affected by this disease, you know, who develops a severe disease, and that's those elderly individuals that we would go visit. Brenda, have you seen any, um, anything that's different in the rural communities? Uh, one thing that I think about is how the schools are such a focal point in rural communities. Yeah, um, fortunately, all of our schools here in Greene County have the ability for e-learning. And so that was a, a pretty quick and easy decision. I, um, I shouldn't say easy, but it, it was operationally it worked because all the pieces were in place to move to e-learning fairly quick. Um, and, and in kind of talking about the schools and the nursing home, a relation that we have there is that we have school-based telehealth units in all of our schools throughout Greene County. And, and that's where we can see the, the students from the school. The school nurse can pull them in, and it's a diagnostic unit, so the kids can be seen from the school. What we've done now that the schools are closed is that we have um, moved those telehealth units to be um, – sorry, my phone's ringing. We've moved those telehealth units to now be in the nursing homes. So our we have a sniffologist who's a physician that only sees patients in the nursing home. They've been able to um, – he's been able to see those patients without entering the facility. So trying to limit the exposure. Um, so it's been nice to be able to move that out of the school, put it in the nursing homes and have that diagnostic telehealth available. Dr. Handel, how is the coronavirus affecting other operations within the hospital? For example, if someone comes in to deliver a baby, are they allowed to bring their spouse with them or are there restrictions on those kinds of things? 
Well, we, we've across the board, we've implemented visitor restrictions. So we, um, and people still have babies and people have other medical um, issues that we need to address that still we, we've been restrictive where we allow one significant other with um, a laboring mom. Um, so yeah, so we, we, but we're, the important thing is we're being intentional about it. Um, we're screening everyone when they come through the front door um, to make sure they're not exhibiting symptoms. I, I think one of the other things we've done to kind of follow up on Brenda's point is that technology is, um, is, a, is a good tool and our patient experience team has been very deliberate about deploying iPads throughout our inpatient setting so that when patients are hospitalized and they can't have visitors, we still have that connection by video and by audio with their loved ones on a daily basis so that they can still connect even if they physically can't be there in person. We, I'm sorry. I think we I think we may have lost Bob for for just a minute. Um, I know New York State and some other hospitals have issued restrictions about um, if you if you are pregnant, your spouse can't come. But that's not the case right now. I just want to make sure. Yeah, I, I can say for IU Health that is not the case. We do allow one significant other um, at this time, based on our guidelines, and that's consistent across our system. And. Brenda, perhaps you can start just, I, I would like to get a better understanding of how this is different in terms of how your staff is treating folks who have this virus as compared to other illnesses that you all are used to dealing with. I mean, I don't know that we, we treat it any different from a kind of a social perspective. It's, um, I think one of the challenges that our nurses are seeing in caring for these patients is um, these are you know, members of our community in a small town. We, we know a lot of our patients, but um, they can't recognize us. And it, it makes it even more frightening for the patients because we have so much PPE on. And, um, and so you're not seeing the familiar faces. And so some of that has been a challenge of, of helping this, the patients understand. So we're, we're implementing where we can have pictures that we can hand the patients to just show them this is who's caring for you. Um, and, and I think um, it's a challenge. You know, nurses are very, very hands-on and um, you can't be as hands-on as you typically would in, in this scenario. And so I think that just dis, that disconnect that we are forced to have somewhat from a physical standpoint is a little bit hard on our staff. Um, but, but otherwise, you know, we're, we're going to be at the bedside when they need us to be there. And we're, we're providing that same level of care, um, from a compassionate standpoint, um, even though it doesn't, um, it doesn't feel as, as touchy feely, I guess, as a nurse would typically experience. And the same thing is true at IU. Absolutely. And I, I it's trying to strike a balance of making sure we're keeping people safe, but still having that personal connection. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting when I've been taking care of patients over the last week, you know, how much you can emote your, your feelings through kind of eye gestures, but you know, when you're when your face is otherwise covered. So um, I think we have to be very, even more intentional in how we communicate with people because people can't otherwise see our typical body language. Yeah. Um, Dr. Armel, we got a question that I think is for you. Just someone is saying, how safe is it to go visit someone if you do practice social distancing? Uh, well, I'm not sure. That question's kind of complicated because if you're practicing social distancing, you're probably not visiting someone. But um, it's if you're going to, uh, it's someone who... Um, is actually in trying to maintain a group of like one-on-one -on -one, um, and someone who is hopefully not in common contact. I mean, right now, unfortunately, trying to determine how safe that is is still quite difficult since we're still measuring new cases. Um, but we've we've kind of suggested that people um, outside their immediate family with whom they live uh, do not um, like do not congregate um, in that um, in that way. So um, it's I can't say that's entirely unsafe, but it's it does raise your risk of potential exposure. So even if you are, you know, um, more than six feet apart or something, you just still shouldn't do it. Yeah, you probably shouldn't. I mean, um, there's, there's been groups who have tried to, to, 
I guess, form small um, social gatherings and then maintain that six feet. But I think one, it might be a little hard to maintain that over time um, or at least trying to limit that contact time uh, there as well, because not only is it distance, it's also time with that person. Um, so that would increase your risk as well. Um, so I think it's trying to maintain that six feet, but, but really I think um, it, it's still, it's hard to always maintain that six feet in that, in that setting. We only have a couple minutes left here and a few more questions to get to. This one is also for you, doctor. Um, it says, we live in a farm and we live on a farm in Hancock County. And then they, it looks like they also own a place in South Carolina. Is it okay for them to go there in May? Yeah, so um, when we placed all the travel restrictions at, uh, in the country, even though there will, there are no, I guess, formal restrictions as far as no one's going to stop you going from state to state, we still were kind of discouraging um, uh, transport even by car, not because you'll be um, infected in the car with the people that you know, but it's actually moving to another community to another level of exposure, potentially bringing something with you. So we're still discouraging kind of um, the uh, interstate travel um, by any means right now. Hopefully that will be one of the first things that are lifted as we see um, as we see cases decrease over time, but that's that's still the recommendation. Well, I think I'm back after a, a slight glitch. So I did want to ask about um, whether there could be, I mean, the, the idea of a second wave coming. I mean, we've seen a lot about that now too. Well, um, I guess we are trying to plan. So as Dr. Handel and uh, uh, Ms. Reitz have actually been explaining that in our surge plans and even here downtown, I mean, we're actually planning on subsequent waves just in case we've set up um, these, uh, I guess, our workforce plans so that um, we have backups and we have that capacity. Um, we've done various things that we've all discussed before. Um, whether we'll see a very, very large second wave, I don't really know. I think what, and, and I haven't seen the, the latest models, but I think the biggest concern um, that I would have are actually just resurgent pockets, not necessarily a wave across the country, but um, in areas where we'll see kind of uh, micro outbreaks um, that will occur and that this will be something that we'll have to deal with. And even if it isn't until next season, you know, if this truly is a seasonal thing, I think we will see that um, and have to be prepared for it. But I don't know that we'll see the same large wave um, as an outbreak. All right. I think, uh, does somebody have a last, last comment? Because we're running out of time. I'll just want to say, I, I can't be more proud of the, uh, our team members who've just um, to a T have stepped up to meet the needs of our communities. And I think this really kind of shows um, how, how invested people are in, in taking care of their neighbors and um, the population at large. And it's, it's, it's been just nothing short of heartwarming and um, fantastic to see how people have really stepped up to meet the challenge. All right. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Dan Handel from uh, IU Health South Central Region. We've also had Brenda Reitz, CEO of Greene County General Hospital, and Aaron Ermel, who's with IU, the IU School of Medicine, um, the, the clinical service line leader for the Division of Infectious Diseases. Thank you all for joining us. It's been very, very helpful. For our producers, Benta Boutier and John Bailey, for co-host Sarah Whitmire, also for Matt Stonecipher for his help today, help today and engineer Mike Pashkash on Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.